in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. Again, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jordan and I'm the pastor here. Just glad to be here. We, we planted this church about eight months ago and uh, we're just really excited that, that you're with us. So uh, thank you and uh, let's Let's jump back into our series that we've been in. Um, before, I, before I talk about that, I, I want to uh, talk about a character in Greek myth. So we're actually moving, we're moving through the Mediterranean Sea a little bit, and we're starting with Greek, a Greek story instead of actual Hebrew history here. So there's a character in Greek myth who's enjoying quite a comeback. And I don't know if some of you have more time for watching like peak TV. You know how they talk about how we're in peak TV right now? There's like more scripted shows than ever, and they're all amazing. Anyway, there's this character that's making quite a comeback. And you can tell as much in that even a lot of episodes are being named after him for some of these great written TV shows. There's, there's something unique about his plight that for whatever reason really strikes modern people. And that's why we're hearing more about him. His name is Sisyphus. Does anybody know who Sisyphus is? Just to raise a show of hands, just so I can get a sense. It's no, no shame if you don't know who he is. I just want to get a sense for who knows who he is already. So he has this whole story, but what he's really famous for is especially how he ends Homer calls him the most cunning of all men. He cheats death twice, even capturing the embodiment of death, whose name is Thanatos, which I I think has to have some kind of connection to Thanos in the Marvel world, but I'm not positive. Thanatos, he actually means death. It's just the word for death in Greek. It's like one of the first probably 30 vocab words I learned when I had to learn Greek. Uh, So he cheats death twice, and Zeus himself intervenes, and punishes Sisyphus for, you know, besting death twice. He punishes him by giving him an eternal task. And Homer recounts it in the truest or sort of uh, most beautiful, most terrifying, whatever, version. Uh, And he recounts it through Odysseus in in his namesake story, The Odyssey. So Odysseus describes Sisyphus's, that's hard to say, his punishment. He says, then I witnessed the torture of Sisyphus as he wrestled with a huge rock with both hands, bracing himself and thrusting with hands and feet, he pushed the boulder uphill to the top. But every time, as he was about to send it toppling over the crest, its sheer weight turned it back, and once again, toward the plain, the pitiless rock rolled down. So once more, he had to wrestle the thing up, or wrestle the thing and push it up, while the sweat poured from his limbs and the dust rose high above his head. And there's some sort of connection here that modern people make. Actually, interestingly, there's a lot of parallels to the story of Adam and Eve. There's this idea, a lot of ancient um, stories have shared themes. And uh, there's this idea of trying to cheat death, trying to become like a god, and then in, in attempting to live forever. But then because of that, being forced to toil and sweat, and there's this connection to the dust, having to labor by the sweat of your brow and, and toil in the dust. And in Sisyphus's case, it's without end, without really much of a purpose. It's extremely tedious work, just pushing a boulder up, and then almost when you get it there, it just rolls back. Uh, but again, he's, he's really caught the collective imagination today, and I think it's because it, it's, it so mirrors the human condition. It so mirrors the condition to sin and the kind of things that we strive for that aren't actually meaningful, and we can never quite even achieve the things that aren't meaningful in the first place. But anyway, I was thinking about this story a lot this week while I was reading in Genesis, because it's around here. Every time I go through the Bible, it's around this point, we're, we're coming into Genesis 16 today, that I can't help but think about Sisyphus, which is really strange, because there's not exactly a parallel in Genesis 16. But I keep thinking of his story 
um, in this spot of the Bible. There's these sort of Sisyphean wanderings of people trying and pushing and just relentlessly going through the same motions, but then falling back. So over and over in the Bible, God promises to do great things, and over and over his people hear him, but instead of actually just resting in those promises, they try to arrest God's promises and sort of they hold them within their own power and they try to accomplish them under their own means. And this is where this Sisyphus, sort of, when I read through Genesis, just smacks of Sisyphus the whole time. So uh, that brings us to Abram, Abram's story in Genesis 16. I will accidentally go between Abraham and Abram this whole story and just don't even bother. Just, just disregard me. And he's still Abram in this part of the story, but looking backward from the future, it's hard not to call him Abraham. So do you guys remember where we just left, left off last week? So here he had been told by God that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars. And there's this triumphant moment where he believes God, even though it doesn't make sense. He believes that God will actually give him these descendants as numerous as the stars. And then there's this famous line that Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So there's this huge promise to an old man with an old wife who's past her childbearing years, but he believed, he didn't waver, just glorious, right? And for a moment... You might think, oh, I get it. Like, I get why Abram was chosen to be the patriarch, why he was chosen to be the one beginning the plan of redemption. But then the very next line happens. This is literally a one-line change from the end of 15 to the beginning of 16. And it shows how fickle we are. It shows that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We go ahead and do things like this. So I'm going to be reading uh, from the NLT. Sometimes in these older stories, it can be more helpful to read from the NLT. So that's what I'm going to be reading from. Um, Genesis 16, starting with verse 1. Now, uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. Not the lightest of Bible texts to teach from on a Sunday evening, huh? So first of all, what in the world is going on with this story, right? Like when you read this with modern eyes, you're just like, this is terrible. Uh, but let me just say this to start. Abram and Sarai were not monsters. They weren't just terrible, although looking back, it can seem like this. Um, Sarai couldn't conceive, so she took her maidservant and gave her to Abram as, as a, a concubine or a, or a wife, which is common in the ancient world. And the understanding is that this woman would instead conceive the, ch the child that Sarai could not, but then that when that child was born, it would belong to Sarai and Abram rather than to this concubine. And we I'd say rightly so in the modern world, tend to be really down on Sarai and Abraham for doing this. And there's really good biblical reasons to do so. But it can help to jump inside their time a bit and know that this is not actually strange at all for that time. doesn't mean that it's okay, but at least means that it wasn't strange for their time. We actually have 2,000 years deep of documentation from Egypt to all of the other neighbors of the Hebrews, and they all practice this same thing. In the case of infertility, there were four things that were often written into marriage contracts. And we actually have these since marriages were contracted and written down. We have copies of these that we've dug up. Um, by the way, this is just an aside. 
Uh, how much to say here? All these things that I cite about the ancient world aren't just things that I learned you know, in graduate school or something. And even if they were, they'd be things that I learned from someone else. So I just want to say, whenever I write a paper or I write you know, something that goes online somewhere, you can cite it, you know, either in a footnote or you can cite it right within the text if you're doing like journalism. So I just want to make it clear, I think people know this, but um, without saying too much on a recording here, I, I had a friend recently who, who caught a pastor uh, plagiarizing um, and legitimately you know, trying to take material as, as his own, which I don't do, but I realize it's really hard to cite when, you, when you're taking material that you've learned from other people. You're not, not taking it word for word, but just the things that I often will preach on, the research I do throughout the week, are things that I will spend 15 or 20 hours looking into. And then when that information comes out in a sermon, I can't be like, and the Zondervan 1998 Old Testament backgrounds commentary written by Walton. Like, it's just, it just doesn't work, you know? People already have such short attention spans, you can't cite stuff while you go. So anyway, sometime I hope to put up on our website the 20 or 30 resources that I most often use, and it's normally the top 10 even that I get a lot of my material from. Anyway, I just want you to know, just so you know, everyone's clear, no, no one's accused me of this, but I just was thinking about this, like how do pastors appropriately cite material? And you know, this isn't just all cooked in, you know, I, I read this stuff and, and learn it every week so that we can go through this together. So anyway, they were talking about ancient marriage contracts and how this wasn't as strange as, as it is for us. It wasn't actually that strange for the ancients. Um, so there were these contracts. And if someone, if specifically if the woman was not able to conceive, there were four ways that this was dealt with, not necessarily in order. The first was, uh, and you could see this like in King Henry VIII, uh, you divorce the spouse and marry another and try again. It wasn't ideal, but that happened. Um, a second option, which happened more often, was you marry a second person of equal social status. In the ancient Near East, people would have multiple wives sometimes if they were very wealthy. If they were wealthy, they would sometimes have up to four wives. It was just the way it was. It's still like that in the Islamist world today, actually. Um, but it's clearly not the plan from the beginning, but it happened. Third, and this is the most common uh, happening, and this is what's happening here, was the husband would take a concubine or a handmaid on the side of the spouse in order to conceive, and then that, when that child was born, it would belong, it would sort of be in the stead of the, the spouse who wasn't able to conceive. The fourth option was adoption, and these were all written about in these ancient marriage contracts. And again, number three, what's happening here with a concubine that comes into the situation was the most common. Uh, let's see here. So why? Do you ever ask yourself, like, why, why would they go through something so strange? And again, though certainly not ideal, and it would cause all kinds of tension in the family, the alternative is even worse. And you guys have heard me talk about this some from, from a financial angle. Abram didn't really struggle financially. But across the, the ancient Near East, there's this fear, this terrible fear of not having an heir, because they had no safety net at all, right? They had no Social Security, no Medicaid. If you got older and you weren't able to either herd the animals or to plow the fields and grow crops, you would starve to death if no one was there to help you. Family was the number one way that you could end in a peaceful way, maybe dying in your sleep or in a more peaceful way rather than starving or being taken over by some other neighboring tribe or something like that. But not only that, and this is what I haven't spoken about as much, is that your entire, the way that you were viewed, the way that you were honored and respected was through often the size of your family. So today, you know, when you meet someone just at any function, they'll almost straight away want to figure out what you do for a living, right? That's how we size each other up in this country. It's just the way it is. It's interesting living in an art building 
that everyone had to be an artist and put some sort of portfolio in to get in because it's actually changed the introductory conversation in our building. And it's like one of the first times since college where people ask what your major is, right? It's one of the first times since college where people don't ask me what I do for a living. And I have a number of friends there that don't actually know what I do, but they, they knew as of the first conversation that I write. They're like, well, you know, what's your art? What is your art is the conversation that people ask. Uh, but anyway, in the ancient world, it was all about you know, your, your power, your possessions, your wealth, which is often in animals or crops or land, and also the size of your family. And so, again, we, we come to this chapter, and I'll, I'll get off this this high horse in a little moment here. Uh, but when we come to this chapter, it can be really easy to judge, like, what in the world is going on in this situation? And uh, C.S. Lewis famously called that chronological snobbery, right? When we judge another age by the things that we hold dear today. And again, there's, there's something to judge here, don't get me wrong. Um, but this is an interesting point here, that what they're doing is quite normal, and it's actually, I don't know if you realize this, this practice is actually coming back into style today, and it's called surrogacy. Now, there's only one difference. So modern surrogacy normally involves, uh, there might be some kids here, so I'll just take out some specific words, but um, it just involves taking parts from both the, the man and the woman in a lab, and then you eventually implant them in a surrogate mother who, who carries the baby to, to term. And it's, it's interesting, because this is done through contact, contracts. This is actually like, paid. It's like, like you have, it's a service, it's a servant, right? You have this sort of master and servant relationship between who's paying, who gets paid, who carries the baby, who has to give the baby up after the, the nine months. And the only difference is that we have modern labs, so the actual conception can happen in a lab rather than having to happen in, per in person, the old-fashioned way, you could say. But in the ancient world, the surrogacy was common, but because they didn't have labs, they actually had to have the husband, you know, have sexual relations, as the, the Bible says here, with the, the surrogate mother. So again, I'm not, I'm not excusing the behavior at all. It's definitely not what God had in mind, and it wasn't righteous, but it can at least help us to see that it's normal. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, it can help sometimes to go outside of our own age and then look back on us. If you, look, if you, if you read a lot of history or you read a lot of stuff from other parts of the world, you can start to see your own culture in the bizarre way that others do and others must see you, or what history might have seen you like. And so when we... Um, look at this story of this you know, concubine example. It can be jarring, and, and rightly so, but it wouldn't be, it's not any more jarring than if you went back to the early church and you told the early church leaders some of our methods for uh, fertility control, birth control today. So if you told them about uh, maybe that many men uh, get vasectomies in the modern era, they might just be aghast. Not that vasectomies are necessarily wrong or right, I'm just saying it would, be, it would be shocking to people from other eras. Or if you just told them about other kinds of birth control. It's always been something that people throughout history have taken charge over their fertility. Normally it was to have more children, whereas in the last hundred years it's been to have fewer um, and we, we, we need to hold all of these methods, you know, according to the Bible and ethical standards, and some of them are more ethical and some of them are less. Um, but it is interesting to just to know that all ages think all other ages are absolutely crazy in their process. It's just that we're used to the ones that we're used to, and we're not used to theirs. So anyway, what comes of all this? So they have the promise of God, but they take the power into their own hands, their own means. They bring this Hagar servant girl into the equation in order to conceive an heir. And guess what? She conceives. But then it throws everything into chaos in their family. So then you have this sort of this strife scene that you could imagine happening. So the story goes on in verse 4. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. 
Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. And Abram replied, I just think this, what a terrible reply. This is supposed to be like the patriarch, like the father of bringing redemption to all people. And he goes, look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. And then Sarai treated, this is awful, then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. So Hagar conceives, disrupts the whole order of their, of their home, and Sarai cannot do the, the very you know, thing most respected and esteemed by women is, is bearing children, but this servant can. And so it completely messes up like the social status of the home. So this is not at all the same illustration, but I wanted to paint this and make it maybe a modern-day picture just to get a sense for the disruption that would happen in a family. So I was thinking, imagine you're, a, imagine you're an assistant to a struggling actor. And say this actor has a day job and actually has some money so can pay for an assistant. Otherwise, this analogy breaks down real quick. But say you, know, you, you work for someone who has a, a good job, but they, they desperately want to be an actor, and they're just no good. They, they get few auditions, and when they do get an audition, they never get a call back. And you're just there as their assistant, you're helping them, you're helping them to schmooze or make connections or whatever it might be. Um, and one time, you're helping them read lines outside the audition in preparing. And what you don't know is that the director is also out there having a you know, coffee break or whatever and watches the, the two of you reading lines and just absolutely sees a spark in you but not the person that you work for. And this ha you hear this in Hollywood all the time. You hear these stories about like, someone accompanying their friend to an audition, and the director's like, no, I gotta have you audition too. Anyway, so the director sees this, demands to have the assistant also um, audition, and of course, you know, then the assistant just kills it. So the, ones who, the one who wants to be an actor is no good, but then the one who is just the assistant, sort of the servant, the afterthought, ends up killing the audition, and soon enough they get the part and all the directors want to work with them. It's not the same at all. It doesn't, I'm not saying like compare each person to a, a person within the Genesis story. What I'm talking about is something that we could understand in our modern era would really disrupt that relationship between the person who's paid to be an assistant and this you know, maybe wealthier or more successful person who desperately wants to be an actor. All of a sudden this assistant is getting all the roles and then the one who before was paying them. It, just, it, it, it messes up the whole thing and almost that relationship almost necessarily breaks in that case. There are very few people who can come out of a, such a disruption in the social order and just be totally fine. So anyway, it's not a, it's not a perfect analogy but, it, uh, analogy, but it gives you a sense of how awkward and how quickly this would become awkward within their family. In the ancient world, if you're a servant, you're just an, an afterthought, you're low. And if you're married to one of the wealthiest people, or rather, sorry, if you're serving one of the wealthiest people around and then you're brought into this concubine situation, and now you essentially, you solve the biggest problem that this near king has and that he has no heir, it's a huge disruption within that world, that you're, the, you're this servant who came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden you're fixing all of the problems for Abram, and that he now has progeny, he now has an heir. And so, because of this, um, Sardai kind of gets upset. So remember, remember these four categories that we were dealing with before. You could divorce and remarry, you could marry a second woman, or you could conceive with a concubine, but then because of this disruption and all this change in social status, you, people, it's like they get confused about where the lines, 
were originally drawn. So she started as a servant or concubine, but then the story even gets it confused and starts referring to her as a wife some. So it's like, wait, is she, a, is she a concubine or is she a servant or is she a wife? And later in scripture, they finally get it like cleared up and she's always called this servant or a concubine. But in the story, it keeps going between the two words. And so you see that the confusion is happening in their family too. Is Hagar a second wife or is she a servant? So Hagar senses this power difference and honestly, she might not have done anything wrong. She might have just held her head up a little bit more confidently. But as you can understand, Sarai would have felt contempt at just about anything Hagar did after this happened. So we don't actually know how much contempt was being shown by Hagar or not. I think we, in the modern era, one of our strengths is we tend to be good at uh, identifying with the weak ones. We tend to be better at identifying with oppressed people more than leaders. And uh, Sarai clearly had all the power in this situation. So then Sarai is bothered and she says to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. You know, the Lord will show me who, who's wrong. And then Abram basically just says, well, you know, she's your servant, so do as you see fit. What a mess, right? So they're ignoring God's promises and then trying to accomplish for themselves what God had promised in the first place, but they're using their broken means to do so. Abram's really passive, and Sarai, by any account, is actually being abusive to Hagar, at least verbally, uh, and possibly more. The scripture doesn't tell us, but she's being, I would say, you know, abusive of Hagar. Well, we, we don't know what she did to Hagar, but we know that it was bad enough that Hagar had to flee. She had to get out of there. And it's not like today when you're like, you know, a woman fleeing a bad situation. You can at least trust getting in your car and getting on the road and going to the next city or going home. But in that day, you couldn't because you normally had to go on foot. And so somehow, Sardai was treating her so badly that she was willing to risk it and go travel alone through the desert as a you know, the single woman with, with a child. And if you know anything about the Middle East, either in the ancient world or today, that's an extremely dangerous thing for a woman to be alone traveling in that situation. Because uh, Abraham, didn't, Abraham didn't do the right thing. He was just passive and let her be treated poorly. Now here she was fleeing, and Abraham's you know, heir, even though kind of an illegitimate heir, is it uh, about to be killed or abducted or we don't know? And so, since he doesn't do the right thing, God himself intervenes and sends a messenger. Verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar in, beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. That's a place in Egypt. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. So she's headed on her way to Egypt, and the angel of the Lord says to her, which is a little surprising to us, she says, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. At this point, I think she's probably just like some tension and maybe verbal abuse and rather than physical happening in the home. So she said, return to your mistress, or the, the messenger said, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count, which is this re repetition of a, the promise to Abraham is now being given to Hagar. So this, this angel says, or this messenger says, go back, not so that the dysfunction can continue, but because she's carrying Abram's child. And God still has this, prob, or this promise with Abram. He's giving the family a second chance to make this right. And also, it would be no good to have her killed or abducted in the desert. Much later, she would end up finding her way uh, on and, and moving on from that family, but in a much safer and more natural break. So the angel says here, in verse 11, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. 
You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. If you guys have ever heard of the um, Shema, which is this famous uh, Jewish thing that they still do daily in the temples today, uh, Shema is, you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, this famous verse in the Old Testament. That Shema here is the same root that's in Ishmael's name. Ishmael is in the Shema. It's the same, anyway, geeky language stuff. It's the same word. So Ishmael means El, God hears. God Shema's, he hears. So this is comforting. God meets her and shares this promise to Abram with her. But then this, this messenger, it's weird. It's a messenger speaking, but speaking in the first person as if he's God. This is how ancient messengers worked. Uh, so God or the messenger is speaking to her and gives her this strange prophecy. In verse 12, the messenger says, This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. And this is kind of a wild um, prophecy, but actually absolutely true to this day. So I don't know if you know this, that almost all Arabs line or, or look at their lineage and draw it back to Ishmael, whereas, of course, all Jews uh, look to their uh, lineage to Isaac, who would be the next son born. And here this prophecy is that there would be sort of infighting between brothers, between relatives, and that your, uh, your descendant would be this you know, wild person, untamed. The language here often goes with... Um, herding people, sort of desert nomad people. Um, and Ishmael's descendants, a lot of them settled in Egypt all the way through Turkey, and a lot of Arabs today still descend, claim their descendants from Ishmael. So anyway, there's a, that's, this prophecy is absolutely true. So anyway, we're, it's like, hey, you're going to have as many, you know, you won't be able to count how many children you'll have, but they'll hate all of their cousins. And so it's kind of a weird, <laughs> weird prophecy. Uh, but despite this strangeness, Hagar is super touched to be spoken to by this messenger of the Lord. And then something happens that never happens in the rest of Scripture. It says um, in verse 13, Thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, You are the God who sees me. She also said, Have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well, the well that they were having this conversation at, was named uh, Ber Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. And it can still be found between Kadesh and Bered, so here, this is crazy, an Egyptian woman, uh, pregnant without a husband, is the only person in all of Scripture ever who gives God a name. No one else ever tries, no one else even dares, but she gives God a name, and he receives it. And the name is Ata el Roi. it just means you are the God who sees me. And sometimes in our American accent, you might hear someone say this, they'll call God El Roy, which is the American sort of killing of the Hebrew Ata el Roy, and they'll say El Roy for that, which is, you know, I don't, I don't blame them. I don't, you don't want to be the guy who's like, I went to Paris last week. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to be that guy. So sometimes it's okay to say it in your own accent. Uh, but El Roy, this is where this name for God comes from. And it's the only name in all of Scripture that comes from a human being, and it's this unwed Egyptian servant girl uh, who arguably doesn't even know who Yahweh is or really know what he's about. But God receives this name. And this is, uh, you see these hints all throughout the Old Testament that early on we know that God's plan was always to be the savior of the whole world, not just the savior of the Jews, not just the savior of the Gentiles, not just the people from the Levant, but from the Hebrew patriarchs to Egyptian servant girls, Arabs, Hebrews, and all those crazy Europeans from whom many of us here descend, uh, you know, at this time, who knows what they thought of them. 
But God is the God of all of these people. God is the God who hears, and he's God over all. So he tells her to go back. So Hagar, it says in verse 15, she goes back. Hagar gave Abram a son, and Abram named him Ishmael, which is interesting because then Hagar would have told him about this whole thing, and he believed it. He went with it, called him Ishmael. And it says, Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. So that he may have, though this may have all started as less than ideal, the, I don't know if you caught this, the original idea was that Sarai could not bear children, so Hagar was going to be this surrogate on Sarai's behalf. But then it was understood that it would be Sarai's baby instead of Hagar's. But in the end, it's, not, it's just like a complete mess. That's not what happens here. So notice who's not even mentioned. Let me read this verse again and figure out which of the characters isn't even mentioned. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old, and Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So if all had gone to plan, Sarai would have been the one naming this child, because it was her servant, supposedly, who's having the child. But because of Sarai's treatment, something here is changing, and we're having to read through the lines. It's not telling us this exactly. But when she goes back, this time it looks like she's not just Sarai's servant. Abram himself receives her as the bearer of his child, and Sarai is not even a part of this little episode. She doesn't get to receive the child. She's not naming the child. Nothing is happening from her. This is Abram. You know, it wasn't a great call that he made in the first place, but he's doing his best to try to make it right, right? And so he's receiving her after this, you know, verbal abuse or whatever had happened. He, this time, is taking responsibility for his actions. He's receiving her into the home listening to her story about the name, naming the child the name that Hagar said it should be named, and Sarai is left out of this part of the account. And so, man, when I just think about this, like, they had the promise, right? They had these huge, yeah, promises from Yahweh, but instead of listening or just resting in those promises, they went their own way, and then they made a total mess of things, and God basically puts them in a position, he forces them to make it right. And God works through even their own disobedience here. But as I read this story, I just keep thinking of the lessons that we see in this to not try to earn the promises of God. They're given these promises, but instead of resting in them, they just they keep working. They keep working as if they're servants rather than resting in the sonship, rest, resting in this promise of God. So I want to encourage you not to work for what's already freely given to you. Jeremiah compares this to broken cisterns. He says, uh, in Jeremiah 2, he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And this is what Abram is doing here. God is offering a fountain of living water, but instead, we, we often spend our time hammering out our own broken cisterns filled with just muddy and gross water because we're trying to wrestle the promises. We're trying to wrestle God's goodness into our own workable frame. And that's what the human condition is, that we want to be like God or we want to be sort of like a demigod. We scheme, we plot. We want to be whether you know, famous or rich or beautiful, whatever your thing is, whatever your, your fruit in the garden looks like for you. And the story of humanity, I think, is consistently this tasting of the fruit and constantly falling. Just like Sisyphus, again, he's, he's, he's here for me when I read this part of Genesis. Just like Sisyphus rolling that boulder up the hill, forever heaving, toiling by the sweat of his brow, only to watch it roll back down again to make a really a bigger mess than it ever was before. 
Jesus made the way for us to become like God, to be transformed into his image, into his true image. He is the true way, he's the only way, and he says he's the only way to our Father. He not only lifted the boulder, so to speak, but he obliterated it. And what's interesting here is that, that even though Sisyphus is not in the Bible, of course, here Sisyphus cheats death and is enforced to toil forever because of it. Jesus, you know, kind of being the true man, the true Adam, he didn't try to cheat death or conquer it. He, he rather conquered sin and he conquered death in the process of this. That instead of meaningless, endless toil, we would be received into his communion and seen as blameless forever before him. So I want to encourage you to not choose the way of the boulder. Don't try to choose to be a demigod and try to cheat death and become like God yourself. Instead, rest in the promises and know that God promised you life and life in abundance. Now, let me pray for us and I'll have Matt come back up. Lord, we, we thank you for working through our broken decisions, Lord, for bringing beauty out of our weakness of trying to um, hold on to your promises and accomplish them by our own means. Uh, we pray that you would help us to rest in your promises, to rest in your grace, and not to try to work forever as servants for what we already have as sons. We thank you, Lord. We just pray that you lift our hearts and worship to you. Uh, we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at CapitalCitySt.Paul.com. Our music today, Slow Burn, was written and produced by Kevin McLeod under the Creative Commons 4.0 license. Mm-hmm.